It's a huge pleasure and honor to have um, Satya Nadella with us uh, here today. Uh, he is, I think, the GOAT of technology CEOs. So it's having LeBron here with me or something similar <laughs> is sort of what it feels like. Um, and I think um, just for a little bit of history, you know, you joined Microsoft, I believe, in 1992 and um, ran a variety of different divisions, took over a CEO in 2014. And when you joined Microsoft, it was perceived as sort of the behemoth of tech. And then it went through a period in the 2000s where it was viewed as a company that was still very strong in enterprise and other areas, but wasn't necessarily going to set the stage for the future. And then I feel like under your tenure, it's transformed into the, one of the most exciting and interesting companies in all of technology. And that's through big moves around LinkedIn, OpenAI, gaming, just a variety of different areas. Um, it'd be great to just hear first, what was Microsoft like when you took over and how did you think about the culture, the directions, the strategy, and how you were going to impact that over time. First of all, it's uh, great to be with you, Elad. And, uh, you know, it, it is true. It's, um, I've now spent uh, over three decades in one company, and um, it's pretty much all my professional career. And um, I have better language to describe it now, but um, I think Companies, I mean, here there are lots of folks who are founders of companies, and I think companies also um, go through these refounding moments. I picked this up from uh, Reid Hoffman, which I think is a fantastic frame. It's not talked about as much. And uh, yeah. although in 2014, when I became CEO, having grown up in the company uh, as a consummate insider, I felt that we needed to essentially refound the company, uh, ground ourselves back in. What's the core sense of purpose and mission um, so that then we can pursue something new and bold, uh, you know, keeping that mission in mind. And, and um, in fact, when I joined in 92, we used to talk about a PC in every home and every desk as our mission. In retrospect, you know, it is easy. You could put it on a spreadsheet and calculate it and what have you, except that in, by, by the late 90s, we have more or less achieved that, at least in the developed world. And I felt, you know, ever since then, it was a little like, okay, what's our mission? Is it mission accomplished? Is it time to return all the money to the shareholders? Um, uh, and so that's why I went back all the way, quite frankly, to the very genesis um, of the company, uh, you know, after all, we were a tools company first, uh, you know, Bill built uh, the basic interpreter for the Altair. And I said, God, you know, there's more need for tools and platforms in 2014, 2023. You know, I'm coming from uh, OpenAI's dev day. That's who we are, right? At the core, we build tech so that others can build more tech. And um, so I said, let's ground ourselves in that mission. And that has been very, very helpful. Uh, the other one, though, is cultures, the other piece you brought up. Look, I distinctly remember um, at Microsoft in the late 90s walking around campus and there was just all the folks sort of saying, God, we must be God's gifts to mankind uh, because we are so good, you know, now that, you know, the market also recognizes it, except that it was obviously the beginning of the end in some sense, right? The day hubris takes over and you're not grounded in what made you first of all successful, that customer feedback loop, that hunger to learn, to experiment, to do things, which obviously, you know, startups do. Um, and so I loved, you know, I picked up this cultural frame from Carol Dweck at Stanford around growth mindset. And I said, God, we don't want to be these know-it-alls, but we want to be learn-it-alls. 
And that has been God set, right? Because one, it is not considered new dogma from a new CEO. It is something that I think spoke to people. Uh, it as humans, uh, we, you know, it helps us be better parents, better partners, better colleagues, neighbors, leaders. And so between these two things, that sense, a renewed sense of purpose, I, I, I tell you, especially you shouldn't, I mean, in founders, I think, have this innate capability because they've created something from nothing. And then there's the cult of personality that carries forward. But when at some point, if your company is going to outlast you, uh, that mission has to be a lot more than cult of personality. And uh, so that's why I think CEOs in particular, or mayor model CEOs like me, being much more focused on what is the mission, what is the culture, um, is the one thing that I would say are two critical things. And of course, that gives you the permission to then make the right calls, but you have to make right calls on strategy picking, execution, because, you know, yeah, but at least it gives you better shots on goal. How do you think about the ability to pursue strategy in today's climate? So I know M&A is a little bit more challenging for a variety of reasons. There's a big wave of AI and other technologies sort of happening. What advice would you give to founders in the audience or people who are running successful businesses in terms of how to think about their directionality, but also how to think about tools like M&A or organic growth? I mean, I think, look, at the end of the day, you know, we talk a lot about M&A, but I think all of us fundamentally bet on organic growth, right? Whether you're a startup or you are a large company, if I look at even at Microsoft, I think a lot of of what gets written about is are inorganic. But when I think about most of the big hits and the most of the big revenue generators are quite frankly partnerships and organic. Uh, partnerships is another thing that people don't talk about. Like, I mean, the OpenAI thing is, it's a great partnership. I grew up, in fact, the Gates Grove model is something that I, I love, right? Which is Intel and Microsoft created the PC ecosystem. It was one of the wonderful partnerships. Uh, it's also important, right, in partnerships, um, it's important to sort of, you know, what happens is if one of the partners becomes too greedy, uh, then it's unstable. Uh, but if you can cultivate great partnerships, that's another fantastic uh, source of uh, growth for co companies. And so, yes, in organic partnerships and then strategic M&A, all three matter. Uh, for a company today, yes, I mean, I think we're going through a little bit of uh, what I'd say uh, is, you know, I, Regulatory adjustment around the world is the best you know, way I can describe it to understand whether we should allow M&As, you know, big companies just because they're big shouldn't be acquiring, which I think will have a chilling effect. Um, and it's not exactly good for, quite frankly, more startup creation and more vibrancy. But let's say that settles. Uh, but I think, yes, or, I mean, I would always look at all three of them. Organic, first focus on having a great organic plan because that's the one thing you can always control. Partnerships is something that I would say, you know, don't think of it as, uh, you know, a press release, but I think it can absolutely be, um, you know, and, and long-term stable partnerships, right? Where you win, I mean, it's the three wins, right? The customer wins, the, the partner wins, and you win. In fact, the best partnerships are when you start think, caring about the partner really making sure that they're getting economic surplus. Because if it's all about, look, okay, you know, a lot of sometimes in our Silicon Valley culture, we have a little bit of excessive zero-sum uh, stuff. There are very few zero-sum battles, actually, when you speak, you think about it. But we are very obsessed about everything as being zero-sum. Uh, and that's where I think a little bit of subtlety, nuance would help. So one of the big waves that's happening right now that Microsoft has really been central and seminal to is this change in AI. And that's 
transformer-based models, diffusion-based models have really changed the trajectory of what we can do with these sorts of machine systems. Um, you've lived through some of the biggest technology waves of the last 30 years in a really central position, and that's everything from the internet to cloud, the PC revolution, which you mentioned, mobile. How big of a deal is AI in your mind relative to all these other trends? I mean, I, I think it's sort of, um, it's, it's as big as any one of the things that you mentioned. You know, the way I try to come back to what exactly changed um, and how should we relate to it in terms of, you know, any business building, product building. Um, I think there are two big changes, right? One is, I think we're going to think about application interface drastically different. Right. Uh, we have a much, I mean, we've been talking about natural user interfaces forever. You could say for 70 years of computing history from, you know, Engelbart down has always been about like, hey, how do we have the, the ultimate human computer symbiosis? Uh, and I think we now have some new tools to rethink that, right? Chat, it starts with chat, it cha starts with text, but it goes quickly beyond that. It's multimodal um, and, and, and it's going to be uh, very interesting for us to sort of apply. So that's why, in some sense, it reminds me a little bit, at least in our history, of what happened. And I was mentioning this to you backstage when, you know, when I joined the comp Microsoft in 92, you know, just released Word or Excel or PowerPoint or Publisher. Each day there was a new app and because Windows 3 was just happening. Uh, it feels like that, which is, oh, I can rethink even existing categories with new interface. But we also know that new platforms are not about just taking the old and just building a new UI, but there is also, what is it this UI can create as a business that didn't exist? In fact, that's the thing that I'm most interested in. Like, you know, you know, you know obviously mobile had a lot of things we did on the desktop, but it also created companies like Airbnb and Uber. And I think that that's something that we should think about on the UI side. Like what's the UI um, AI first app that, uh, I've sort of started using. I've not, I don't think we've yet cracked it, but I think we're getting close. The second thing that I also think is more, in fact, the other technology that people don't talk as much, I don't know why, and when we talk about our big paradigms, is relational databases. The, I mean, I, I, you know, God, what a thing it was. It is like uh, the most, un, I mean, we the other secular journey in uh, digital technology was digitizing people, places, and things, right? That's another 70 years. All we do is each day we wake up and there's more places, people, and things that are digitized, and relational algebra and relational databases helped us reason over it in interesting ways. I feel like we now have a new pattern recognizer or new reasoning engine in this uh, doing neural algebra on it. So I feel these two things, Ilad, if you take an existing category, I, oh, I have a new way to think about the user interface, I have a new way to reason about all the data I have and the knowledge in the world and do the join, so to speak. Um, if you start thinking of applications that way uh, and then building a new-to-the-world business, then I think uh, this would be as big as, you know, at least any one of the things that you mentioned. A lot of the uh, trends that people are talking about right now that at least strike me as a little bit early but maybe very interesting in the future that capture both of the things that you mentioned is moving to an agent world or an agent-driven world where people talk about how eventually we'll have agents that will represent us, will represent apps we interact with, companies, governments, et cetera. How much of a believer are you in this sort of future world of agent-driven action or agent-driven interfaces? And what do you think the timeline is to that if it, if it does exist? I, I, I'm a big believer in that. Um, and so, in fact, at least um, in our world, the design pattern I love a lot, which we picked for our own product building, uh, which we 
evangelizes a pattern for anybody is this co-pilot. First of all, there's a human in the loop. Uh, the human um, has agency, judgment of the human matters. Uh, and so the first instances were things like GitHub Copilot, where the Copilot uh, is built into the app canvas, so to speak. Uh, there's a sidecar, uh, and those things all work together to help you with the task at hand, which is to get your coding done or what have you. And then we have now propagated that into knowledge work with the Microsoft 365 Copilot across all of our surfaces. Uh, but ultimately, when I think about you know what we did with Bing Chat, I think of Bing Chat as basically the web copilot. Uh, this M three six five is the work copilot. Uh, so the web copilot and the work copilot could be sort of the universal agent, so to speak. That's kind of how at least I conceive of it. Um, but it needs one important capability, which is it needs to be able to talk to other agents, uh, a customer service agent, a travel agent, uh, to get work done. Some of it'd be interrupt driven in the sense that you know it'll come it may it'll be autonomous, but it'll also bring back to you uh, for uh, you know decision making. So I think that one of the key runtimes of our time will be that multi-agent uh, runtime. Um, and there's you know we have a thing in open source called Autogen uh, that is getting some good traction. Uh, so. We are building some of the stuffs similar to that underneath uh, what is our co-pilot. Obviously, today, uh, you know, OpenAI launched a bunch of very interesting stuff with uh, GPTs, which is sort of, I would say, early agents um, on top of ChatGPT itself. They even have an uh, agent API. Uh, all that we will put into even our co-pilot ecosystem. So I think, yes, so to your fundamental point, people, I think this idea that people will have agents these agents will interoperate uh, with each other. Uh, there will be some type of super apps that will be uh, whoever cracks. There'll be a few runtimes uh, where naturally people will gravitate to, which will be these multi-agent frameworks. You mentioned as well that you're very excited about the business potential of a lot of these things and what's going to transform. And obviously, um, Microsoft has done some very innovative things through GitHub Copilot, through some of the other areas that you mentioned. Are there any areas of the business world that Microsoft is not directly involved with that you think are most likely to transform via AI in the near term? Um, that's an interesting way to ask. You know, if I knew about it, I probably would be in it. But, uh, uh, but, I, but maybe a little bit to pull on it, right, which is, you know, look, one of the things I am grounded on is... I think time has come for us as a tech industry to directly parlay what we celebrate as tech advances into broad economic growth. Um, uh, because I think, you know, there's this real critique, which some of it is, I think, well-founded about, hey, you, you guys talk a lot about sort of all this tech, but where is the economic growth? I mean, last time we checked in the developed world, inflation adjusted, we are probably at what, zero or negative growth. And so, there is real need for economic growth, and economic growth that comes while keeping the planet healthy and um, and and you know more equitable and in terms of the growth itself. So there are many other things as well, which I think are core responsibilities. But that said, we have to drive economic growth, and that's where I got excited with GitHub Copilot. Right when I we can take something like uh, software development, one bring joy back to software development. Man, what what we had done to I mean, like you know the fact that I just got a copy paste from a variety of places get distracted instead of that, let's just stay in flow, focus, and then see um, uh, 
how you know you can bring back productivity to the software developers. But the interesting thing about the more we study GitHub Copilot's effect in an organization is if you get software development to be faster, all the other functions around change. The workflow, uh, in fact, you know, when a salesperson does a pull request, that's kind of my thing about like, wow, uh, that's a different org. Um, and so now you can imagine an entire organization that's moving at a different pace. So I think we are at the frontier of figuring out what does it mean for both having these productivity boosters inside of every function? And then what is the workflow if you have it? Like you talked about agents. Uh, I think we will have to discover, if you remember in the mid-90s, when we first started putting things like systems of record, like CRM and ERP and what have you, uh, we used to talk about something called business process reengineering. It was as much about a new methodology or a doctrine even uh, of how you run businesses. Like, you know, you didn't do, um, you didn't have five finance departments or you didn't have manufacturing cogs, not in financial accounting. So some of the business practices will have to change. So that's why I think what is probably interesting would be how people think about a vertical industry or a business process probably is going to be very, very different. And one of the things I think most people thought is that can there be a large business created that only focuses on one vertical or one business process? I think there can be. It all depends on how much economic surplus you can create using this technology. You mentioned um, partnerships earlier and how they're a key linchpin to Microsoft's ongoing strategy and how it's worked with different partners over time. Um, one thing that I think has been very exciting is how you've both worked with OpenAI very deeply for you know their closed source models as well as Meta around Llama and the open source world. How do you think about how Microsoft engages with the open source and closed source and AI evolves over time and those relationships with those partners in particular? Yeah, I mean, for us, um, it's not a Either or, I mean, I mean, if, if the GitHub exists uh, primarily because of the permission uh, to support the open source uh, ecosystem. So it's sort of uh, not something that we take lightly. Uh, and so therefore, we will always be as a company. In fact, you know, it turns out, I think most people don't recognize that we're the biggest contributors to open source. We are probably today the biggest contributor to Linux uh, as Microsoft. And so... Um, so it's sort of now fundamentally ingrained, but that doesn't mean we don't have a bunch of proprietary uh, closed source systems and revenue streams as well. So therefore, uh, to us, it's pretty much uh, part of business. Then the question is, what's the best way to be able to meet the developers, meet the companies, meet the organizational needs that we serve well? And so that's why even when it comes to foundational models, we we'll, you know we have Matt. Obviously, OpenAI is our lead partner when it comes to frontier models, but we have a lot of open source models, including ours. We're really excited about even our own contributions, like the, I love these SLMs, the small language models with Psy. And, um, and so we're going to always contribute, we'll support, uh, and make sure the developers have choice. And in our own products, you'll see a mix of use as well. I guess one of the um, emerging critiques around both open source models as well as advanced LLMs is concerns around safety. And I think people often mix three types of safety. There's um, safety that I'd almost view as like textual safety. It's misinformation, it's bias, it's hate speech, et cetera. There's physical safety. It's will the AI be used to derail a train or develop a virus or things like that. And then there's existential safety. Do you worry about some point having some sort of confrontation with an AI species or an uh, intelligence that's gathering resources or whatever maybe? 
how do you think about those critiques and how do you think about AI safety over time? Yeah, I mean, I love the, in fact, I remember talking to you, I guess, a few months ago and you'd laid out this taxonomy, which I like. I, I think one of the things that we don't have is that a well-grounded way to talk about these perhaps three levels, because when we say safety, it could mean, wow, we're talking about an existential issue or, uh, you know, election interference, deep fakes or what have you. So I think let's take, unpack them um, that way. So my, my feeling is that the first thing we've got to really go and focus on is any real world harm uh, today, uh, right? Because of any AI deployment that sort of is not um, gone right. Uh, and in fact, in democracies in particular, but the thing that I worry the most about is, quite frankly, elections uh, and de our democratic process somehow being unduly influenced by some use of AI. I think that that's the place where, rightfully so, we'll be held to account uh, if something goes wrong there. Uh, because after all, that was the critique of what happened in social media. Everybody was excited about social media because of Arab Spring, but it kind of nearly broke democracy. And so therefore, uh, now everybody says, look, we're not going to make let, let that happen again. And so, so the question is, what do we do there? What does the government do? What does the civic society do? What do companies do? And that's, and, and quite frankly, I think we somehow say that this is, um, uh, at the end of the day, it's a societal choice. It's not any one company can do everything here. It's sort of a societal choice. Like, I mean, like, for example, in the United States, after all, you have to be able to come together and say, what are the well, how do we think about free speech and uh, what turns out to be free speech that is now bordering on election interference uh, or what have you, or disinformation? These are tough things. Uh, and so therefore, this is not like a decision an AI can make or a decision a company's moderators can make. They're societal norms and decisions. And so that's the most complicated process we have to engage in. Quite frankly, the other ones, the existential risk. One, there's time. Second, I think there are more engineering uh, solutions to that. Uh, in an interesting way, the existing, I mean, the fundamental thing is, well, well if you have a self-improving program that we've lost control over, you know, the last time I checked, there are people in other sort of engineering fields who know control theory and how to think about it. Like, so there must be stuff we can learn from others and apply it. Uh, and, but I'm glad that the dialogue is happening on the existential risk in the same time. The other one in the middle, which you talked about, which I, I like, which is, you know, before we deploy AI into the real world, like for example, if it's going to actuate stuff in the world, uh, that might be a thing where you may want to think about uh, more carefully. Uh, and that's where risk-based regulation is also a helpful thing. It's like cars do get deployed, but they have regulation that's different uh, than a lot of other regulations. And so we have, you know, in healthcare, in financial services, in auto safety, already existing regulations, and we can subject AI to the same regulation. So I think having maybe in for the middle, more risk-based um, uh, approach, more research funding, quite frankly, for the existential stuff. And then for the real-world harms today, whether it's bias or election interference, uh, both, what are the societal norms? That's a, as much about us as a, as a democratic society, and especially in the United States, I hope we take that responsibility. And I, I really hope there will be an election in which a politician wins the election, where they're able to articulate a vision, right? This is where it bugs me when tech and tech leaders are the ones who are talking about this, right? That's, I, I didn't elect a tech leader to speak uh, for me as a, you know, a, an elected official. So I would rather have um, sort of the, the, the representatives of the people sort of win elections by having a real vision for what the norms are for how we d engage.
Makes a lot of sense. I guess related to that, there's a lot of promise for AI in terms of global equity. And so when I look at the really big thrusts in terms of where it can impact things, one is in healthcare. And you see things like the MedPalm2 model from Google, which you know has enormous performance on the healthcare side and the ability to have good output relative to health-related criteria. And then education. And Microsoft owns Minecraft, which is one of the most popular tools that I've seen parents engage with. And when I think about the ability to impact education, it's going back to this agent-driven world of something that can customize or interact with your child in a rich way, can tutor them, can teach them. I'm a little bit curious about your thoughts of either those areas of global impact of AI in a positive sense or other areas that you're most excited about. Yeah, I mean, I think education and health um, uh, and perhaps financial inclusion, those would be the three things, obviously, at Stripe. Um, the the first one on the education side, yeah, I was at uh, I was in the UAE just last week, and it was fast, fantastic to see they have they, you know they have an AI minister in the UAE. Uh, in their health department, um, they launched for the country uh, an AI tutor uh, built on um, you know one of the uh, GPT family APIs. But also, you know, I met the founder who was building that because in you know using a variety of different techniques to sort of ground that model. The beauty of having a personalized tutor for all the students of the world is absolutely imminently doable. When you think about the government transfers, government subsidies that exist in education all over the world, even in the developing world, uh, and now to be able to have, you know, what, you know, uh, you know the and GPT-4 turbo pricing, I think it's easy. Uh, for us to think about delivering personalized uh, tutors that are very, very capable. So I'm very excited about that. Healthcare is another one. Like if you like take even the U.S., what, 19% of our sort of GDP is in healthcare. And we know we need the health outcomes to get better, costs to come down. Uh, and a lot of the cost is, quite frankly, workflow cost, uh, right? It's not even like we always go to, you know, some magical drug, this, that, and the other. But those are all fantastic. It's important. But the real cost is in care management. Uh, and that's why I'm excited about even partnering with, you know, uh, someone like Epic, right, who can make a massive difference. Epic is everywhere. They're ubiquitous. Uh, they're building generative AI deeply. And I mean, you know, these things about, like, they were telling me about all these use cases, right? When you finish a shift and you want to transfer, you know, hand off that process, Oh, wow, why not I have a summary? Oh, why not I, when I'm in the bedside, have a bot that I can interrogate to ask all the questions and not have anything lost? Uh, the inbox uh, for the physician. With Nuance, we have this fantastic sort of uh, way now to be able to really transcribe uh, the doctor-patient conversation and reduce physician burden. So I think make, we, we can, and that technology once built, the software once built can reach uh, every hospital in the world. Um, and so those would be the two places, uh, I think, uh, that we can make a huge difference. Um, I, we talked a lot about AI. Microsoft obviously does an enormous amount of things in an enormous amount of important areas relative to B2B, consumer, et cetera. What other areas are you excited about besides AI? You know, look, I, we, we just finished um, uh, closing um, Activision Blizzard. We were very, very excited about gaming. Uh, you brought up Minecraft. And yeah, so gaming is another place where I think as a category for us, I mean, in fact, when I look back at Microsoft, there are three uh, things that I think come naturally to us, which is in our, uh, I would say, DNA. One is these platforms and tools. We will always be a platform developer tools company. That's sort of uh, the core heritage. 
The second thing is productivity and communication software. I think that's the other one that we do. And the third is gaming. In fact, uh, I think Flight Simulator was built before uh, Windows was built. Uh, and so we will always be um, in all these three categories. And also in gaming, what is exciting to me is, uh, you know, we love the console, we love PC gaming, but with some of the changes in cloud gaming, um, we can get gaming everywhere. Um, and so that I think is going to be the place where, uh, and, and, and AI as a platform for all of these would make a real difference as well. So uh, I think you've had one of the most successful CEO runs of all time, you know, in the history of capitalism. I don't, I don't say that lightly. And you took a company that was worth 250, $300 billion market cap. And at the time people thought that was an insanely high market cap. And now you're at two and a half trillion. So you've added 2.25 trillion in market cap over the last eight or nine years. Um, what do you want your legacy at Microsoft to be? And how do you think about that going forward? Or how do you think about, it's N years from now and you're looking back, what do you want to have accomplished? Yeah, I mean, look, I, um, so the way I think about legacy perhaps, or what have you, I'm very suspect of anybody who comes in and says, oh, I showed up in the job. The, the person who was there before me was all terrible and I changed it all and it's all me. I'm very suspicious of those people uh, because at some level, the job uh, is to build institutional strength so that the people who take over from you are more successful than you. In fact, I, I always think about if the, the next person in, and, and by the way, I, I always thought about this growing up in the company, uh, that if the person who takes over from me in any role is able to succeed, um, then maybe you did something right. So quite honestly, I, it's, you know, you know, like in tech, there's no franchise value. We know that uh, you have to sort of reinvent yourself. So that means some of the things you do, um, you have to also really, like somebody said, the metaphor of you got to make sure you leave enough um, you know, f energy in the system so that it can continue to renew it, right? Just thinking of even success by market cap sometimes is definitely not the way to measure things because you've got to invest. Like long before it's conventional wisdom, uh, you can't expect markets to always reward you. Uh, in the long run, they will, but there will be periods of time that, you know, as Bezos would say, you've got to be okay being misunderstood. Uh, which I think is right. So therefore, I, I, I look at all of those as perhaps uh, long-run indicators of something that went right, but not the only indicators. And so therefore, I'm much more focused on making sure, one, that Microsoft is doing relevant things in the future. Uh, and if we have created enough institutional strength, cultural strength, uh, we're not doing things out of envy. We're doing things that are useful in the world. We're doing things um, that sort of help the company succeed, but also it's creating. Like, I, I feel if the world around us is doing well and we're doing well, that's a fantastic sort of equilibrium to achieve. Makes a lot of sense. And then I guess the very last question is we're almost out of time. And thank you again for being so generous with your time. Um, when you look at other areas of technology that you consider very important, there's a lot of different things people are talking about now in terms of fusion or other forms of energy self-driving cars and how that's going to transform cities and transportation. There's a variety of these areas. Are there any that you're watching most keenly or that you're most excited about the societal impact that they may bring? I think energy. Uh, I mean, if I look at even for us, it's pretty existential, right? If I look at um, our own energy needs as we think about AI and our build out, um, 
uh, we definitely need, um, I mean, at some level, the, the, the lucky break we have is uh, it's all fresh project starts. We're the largest purchasers of um, uh, green energy today uh, in the world. So that means we can stimulate even uh, a lot of these new projects, which could be in sometimes risky. Uh, but I feel the biggest thing that we have to make is the energy transition. Uh, and the energy transition is a complex thing. I mean, I had never realized this, that effectively, I think what we're talking about is you've got to take 250 years of chemistry and the entire petrochemical sort of value chain and sort of somehow compress it into 25 years. And I look at that and say, wow, that's the real challenge. I mean, so even from an AI perspective, um, I'm excited about like this AI stuff being sort of super useful and somehow synthesizing some new molecule that then helps with some new batteries, which then help with taking the abundant solar power uh, and making it much more possible for us to tap into it, even in a data center, right? So those are the kinds of real problems that need to be solved and quickly. Uh, so that's the one industry more so than anything, and, and, and that entire chain uh, that I think we have both an adjacency to it uh, and a real dependency on it. Great. Well, fantastic. Thank you again for joining today. It's Thank you so much, Elijah. It's a pleasure.